<laughs> You're all like, how do I respond to that? Hey, <laughs> what's up? <laughs> Good morning, everyone. Um, hey, just a reminder, we are going back to Israel, March 14th through 28th of 2022, so one year from this March, and to get on the tour list, which means you just get on the email list so you can start getting information about how to sign up and what's going to be happening, you can email us at bridge2israel at tbcfwa, tbcfwa.org, and all we want is just your name, best contact number, and then write you're 100% going or you need more info. All right, if you write a long email, I will not read it. Let's open up our Bibles. We will be in Leviticus this morning and a prophecy update. So the two have overlapped. I love when that happens. We've been in this prophecy update series for a while uh, since the turn of the year, looking at things from a prophetic perspective. And uh, this was on my list, what I wanted to talk about, at least the idea, the concept. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom. So we're going to seek the kingdom this morning. We're going to talk a little bit about the kingdom, but open your Bibles again, Leviticus chapter 23. Now I'm going to take you to four or five different passages that I'd really like you to walk through with me this morning as we do the study. So if you don't have a Bible, you might want to grab one off of the back bookshelf so you can stay with us. In the meantime, Leviticus 23, beginning in verse 30, oh, let's see, 33. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, On the 15th of this seventh month is the Feast of Booths for seven days to the Lord. On the first day is a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work of any kind. For seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and present an offering by fire to the Lord. It is an assembly. You shall do no laborious work. Let's pray again. Dear Father, as we enter into your word this morning, we just pray that your spirit would lead and teach us and draw us ever nearer to you. Lord, we recognize, I recognize, I know that what we're going to be talking about is, is so central. I know that it is in your heart for us to know these things and to share these things and to be encouraged by them. So I pray, Lord, this morning that you will uh, teach us fresh and new. Lord, even things that perhaps have been studied and considered by some before would come fresh and new, that there would be new revelation, that our joy of your coming kingdom would increase and our expectation all the more. Spirit of the living God, we pray things like this knowing there's no way we can make this happen, but you can. And so we invite you to implant your word in our hearts and in our minds this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, Jesus said, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. Can I just tell you that the globalists have the right idea? I am not a globalist by the political standards of the day, but the globalist has the right idea, a one-world government. Oh, Rick, how can you say that? Because that's where it's going to go in Jesus. 
See, in the kingdom, there will be a one-world government with a one-world ruler, the perfect dictator, Jesus Christ. The problem with the globalists of today is not that the idea is wrong, it's the way they're going about it is all wrong. Trusting in humanity rather than trusting in divinity. The kingdom is coming. Jesus prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. A prayer that he prayed knowing God must and will answer. Now, listen, when you talk Bible prophecy, you got to work awfully hard to avoid acknowledging a literal, actual, approaching kingdom. You have to skip over things to miss it, that kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. From the very start of his public ministry, Jesus began talking about the kingdom. It was at the forefront of the mind of Christ. Matthew 4, 16 says the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death upon them a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was 2,000 years ago. How was the kingdom at hand? The king was there, and the king was proclaiming his coming kingdom. In the midst of his ministry, Jesus spoke parable after parable about the kingdom, affirming these words, Matthew 13, 52, therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple, a student of the kingdom of heaven, is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. And then even at the tail end of his ministry, so he began talking about the kingdom, he continued to talk about the kingdom, and toward the end of his ministry, he again talked about the kingdom as it remained firmly in his mind. He said in Matthew 24, 14, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. We've been going through these prophecy updates Considering Bible prophecy, comparing it to, as the Bible does, a lamp or a lantern. A lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Well, that's what a lantern is. The gospel message, listen to me, the gospel is like the filament of the lantern. It's like the filament. On this journey to the kingdom, Jesus himself being the power, the great light, that dawns upon people sitting in darkness, just as he said, John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The light, that lantern, leading us to the kingdom. Family, we're en route right now. Sometimes the path we travel is dark and treacherous and uncertain. But I got to tell you this morning, the great light of Jesus Christ will not fail to see us through to the kingdom. And this isn't the stuff of fancy knights and ladies fair. You know, the fantasies of Camelot. This is truth. These are the true words of God that we will come into a kingdom. We will experience, we will live in the kingdom as Jesus comes to establish it, and then, oh, what a celebration we will have. Amen? Amen. Do you want a party? Would you like to celebrate? Are you tired of not being able to celebrate and gather and get together with friends and just do all the things that we used to love doing when we enjoyed being together? That celebration is coming. 
Now, midweek, we got into the feasts and the festivals of Israel. Seven of them listed out in Leviticus 23. And I shared Wednesday night, it's one of my favorite passages in all the Bible because all the seven feasts of Israel with the addition of Shabbat are all listed right there in a place of prominence and in direct order as to how they fall on the Jewish calendar year. And we looked at these feasts, at least some of them, we looked at six out of the seven feasts in the first 32 verses of Leviticus 23. And I stopped there because I recognized the seventh feast has such prophetic implications that it fit our Bible prophecy update. And it was kind of my bait and switch to keep you in Bible prophecy but get you back into Leviticus as well. So I thought that worked good together. So six of the seven feasts we looked at, they're called the Moedah or Moedim. The Moedah, which means in the Hebrew the appointed times. We would say the appointments. The Moedah of Yahweh, the appointments of the Lord. And understand, these were appointments in Leviticus 23 that were to be kept by the Jewish people throughout the calendar year. Appointments of the Jewish people or to be kept by the Jewish people, but which belong to the Lord. And don't miss the significance of that. If you look at chapter 23 all the way back at verse 2, God says, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, the Lord's appointed times, his mo'adah, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations, my appointed times are these. In other words, these are God's appointments. Israel was to keep them, but they're God's appointments, and God never misses an appointment. When he sets, he never forgets an appointed time. They belong to him. And wonderfully, we begin to realize, and we've already talked about this over the years, that every single one of these seven appointments on the Hebrew calendar, everyone is prophetic. The first four in the spring, all prophetic of Jesus' first coming, all completely fulfilled by Jesus in his first coming, in person. The first appointment on Nisan, the 14th, In the springtime, Pesach, we call it Passover. And Jesus fulfilled that in his crucifixion, being the lamb that was slain. And we talked about Wednesday that the key word of Pesach, we could say, is redemption. And then on Nisan the 15th, Chag Hamatzot, which we celebrated the updated version of it just now. Chag Hamatzot, that is the feast of unleavened bread. Speaking of his burial, key word we used on Wednesday night was removal. It speaks of the removal of sin. Then on Nisan the 16th, you know that? 14, 15, 16, right in a row, comes Reshit. And Reshit was fulfilled on that Sunday. It's the feast of first fruits. Guess what? On that Sunday, on Reshit, Jesus rose from the dead. Resurrection. Fulfilling yet another one. So three, the first three feasts, fulfilled specifically by Jesus And then 50 days went by, bringing us to the month of Sivan on the sixth day, Shavuot, Pentecost, fulfilled as the church was born on that day, in that same year, at that same time, marvelously, just 10 days after Jesus ascended, he fulfilled the fourth spring feast in the church. 
The key word we used for that, by the way, was reception, because that was when we received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And everyone who comes to faith in Jesus now receives the gift. Peter said, repent, every one of you, and be baptized, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not the gifts. Those, those are offered, those are given to anyone who asks, but the gift of the Holy Spirit, because it's his Spirit himself that is the gift. So those four feasts, all in the spring, all fulfilled by Jesus, perfectly and explicitly, which then brings us to the three feasts of the fall. Three in the fall, which are all prophetic of Jesus' return, his second coming. On Tishri the first, Yom Teruah, the day of blowing, that's the feast that reminds us, that's the last trumpet, speaks of the rapture of the church. And then Tishri the 10th, Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, also not only the day of atonement, but the Jews think of it as the day of affliction. And it speaks of the time of repentance of Israel. Five days later comes what is called the great feast. Now we talked about the first six. We come to the seventh, the great feast, the last and final appointment of God on the calendar year in the fall, last one to come, and it lasts for an entire week, and it is the most celebrated feast of all the feasts of Israel. It's the most fun. It's the one that the Jewish people enjoy the most. It goes from Tishri the 15th to Tishri the 22nd, and for us, that's September, October, depending on the year. And the feast is called Sukkot. Sukkot, S-U-K-K-O-T. If you're jotting these things down, and I hope you are, because Sukkot is all about the kingdom. This is the kingdom feast. The key word would just be rejoice. As you run through those seven feasts, redemption, removal of sin, reaping is, by the way, I didn't mention that, that's reshit, the first fruits, reaping the first fruits, and then reception, and then the rapture of the church, and the repentance of Israel, and finally the time of rejoicing. And those are the seven feasts. In verse 34 of Leviticus 23, it begins... Speak to the sons of Israel. Now, I just want to say as a political side note, Joe Biden needs to hear that. Speak to the sons of Israel. Will you pick up the phone and call Benjamin Netanyahu already? He has not made a phone call to Israel yet. In his first major foreign policy speech, he didn't even mention Israel one time. I think that tells you something about what's on his mind and what is not. Our closest ally in the Middle East doesn't even mention Israel. Well, President Biden, speak to the sons of Israel. Now let's get back to the passage. The Lord says, speak to the sons of Israel, saying on the 15th of this seventh month, Sukkot is the Feast of Booths, Sukkot, seventh month, Tishri, the Feast of Booths. Sukkot, for seven days to the Lord. Now, Sukkot is the name, it's Feast of Booths because Sukkot comes from the word sukkah. And sukkah means tent. Tent. Sukkot, so the plural form of that, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tents or Pavilions or Tabernacles or Lean To's. You could even say hut. Skipper and Gilligan would be right at home. 
the Feast of Tents. I call it Camp Kingdom because this feast, unique among all the feasts of Israel, is a countrywide camp out. I mean, it is happiness in a hut. It's a party in a pavilion. It's the most celebrated feast, as I said, of the Jewish calendar year. The rabbis simply call it Achag, which means the festival. Achag. The people will say Chag Sameach, which means joyful feast or happy holidays. Chag Sameach. And it is. It is. I love talking about Sukkot because as Victor Buxbazen put it, he said, he who has not seen Jerusalem during Sukkot does not know what rejoicing means. You want to know celebration, you need to experience Sukkot. And we will. Verse 39, skip down to verse 39 in the passage. It says, on exactly the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days. With a rest on the first day, Shabbat, that's the word there, a Sabbath on the first day, and a Sabbath on the eighth day. Now, on the first day, You shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches and and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall thus celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall live in sukkahs, booths. For seven days, all the native born in Israel shall live in booths so that your generations may know. Well, hold it right there. We'll come back to your generations in a second. This is camp kingdom. It doesn't matter if you have a mansion or a little shack. When this festival comes, you grab branches and you build yourself a little tent. And you live in that. You camp out for seven days. A joyful time, a massive nationwide campout, if you can imagine it, and they still celebrate it today. It's still one of the most fun times in the year in Israel. Booths in backyards, lean-tos on lanais. I'm doing this just for my wife's sake. Pavilions on patios, huts on high-rise balconies. Everywhere you look in Israel during Sukkot, people are camping out. If you've got a backyard, you go out in the backyard, you build one of these little lean-tos, you put a table in there, the kids will sleep in there through the week, everybody eats in there, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, they just feast and enjoy and kick back together. Think about the Bridge Family Camp, if you ever did that, for seven days all together, just enjoying fellowship and rejoicing, and they'll do that. They camp out, they eat, they rejoice in these temporary tabernacles for seven days. And it starts off with a full Shabbat Shabbaton. That is a complete Sabbath, a total Sabbath rest on day one. And then after the seven days on day eight, another Sabbath of complete rest. Start with rest, end with rest, and party in between. That's my kind of festival. Verse 43 explains why. So that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths, sukkahs, When I brought them out from the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. So if you don't do it for any other reason, there's your reason to celebrate Sukkot. I am the Lord your God. This is my feast, his final appointed feast. 
And verse 43 explains to us the whole point of the foliage. It's so that as they build these things, they remember, they live in these huts for a week, and as they do so, built the branches at night. Think about this. You look up through the branches and you see the stars over the country. The same stars that sprinkled the heavens when their forefathers wandered through the wilderness. The wildernesses of Sinai and Paran and, and Zen. They would look up at the stars at night. And so God wants his people to continue to do that and to recognize this. They're the same stars Abram saw when the Lord took him outside and said to him, Genesis 15, 5, now look toward the heavens, count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. God's plan, so beautiful. But understand that this week-long festival, though the Lord says, I want my, your generations to know I had the sons of Israel live in Sukkot when I brought them out from the land of Egypt, this week-long festival isn't just past tense. Are you with me? Past tense. It's also not just future tense. Come on, folks, stay with me. If you're feeling a little tense today, this teaching is for you. Or if you fear Costco may again run out of TP. <laughs> By the way, if you listen close today during the Super Bowl, you're going to hear Tom Brady and Patrick Mahomes. They're going to be both talking about this today. You're going to hear them. They'll say, hut. <laughs> All right. You know you do your best. What is a sukkah? Think about this with me. What is a tent? What exactly is it? It's temporary housing, right? I mean, that's what a tent is. Not, this is not permanent. It's temporary. For Israel's journey in the wilderness, the point was you're living in tents. This is not your home. This wilderness is not where you live. The kingdom's coming. The future is out there. Right now, temporary, then eternal. And, and it's like these bodies. In fact, Paul called our bodies tents. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 1, we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having, been, having put it on, will not be found naked. Uh, just the other night, and I'm so glad that you're here, Deb, and, and you look great. You really do. But Deb had a little brief, uh, uh, was it two nights? Yeah, a couple of nights in the ER, which is always fun. I'm with you, sister. And, and so I found out she was in the ER, so I shot her a text. You know, just say, Are you, how's it going? I said, do you need anything? And her response was immediate came up on my phone, well, a new body, and I hear we're getting those soon. <laughs> and I, Cheryl and I just laughed, and I said, amen, amen. These are tents. These are not to last. These will be torn down and will then be glorified into something eternal. Now, Sukkot is a celebration in temporary dwellings. So it's something for us even to consider today that there is a certain degree of celebrating, of joy, even while we are in these temporary tents, these dwellings of ours. But Sukkot, again, is both past and 
future tense, all punning aside, in the past, it was a celebration. Note this. I'll give you four things to jot down. Number one, a celebration of the faithfulness of God in the wilderness. To look back and say, yeah, we were in temporary dwellings, but now we have these homes in the land he brought us through. God said he would do it, and God did it. The faithfulness of Yahweh in the wilderness. Psalm 91, verse 1, a psalm of Moses, by the way, says, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Oh, this tent may be falling apart, but I have a fortress, and his name is Yahweh. Psalm 105, 39, David, talking about the journey through the wilderness, said, he spread a cloud for a covering and fire to illumine by night. They asked, and he brought quail, satisfied them with the bread of heaven. He opened a rock, and water flowed out. It ran in the dry places like a river. For he remembered his holy word with Abraham his servant, and he brought forth his people with joy, his chosen ones with a joyful shout. Listen to that verse one more time. He brought forth his people with joy, and his chosen ones with a joyful shout. Let me ask you, when you were born again, were you brought forth with joy? And now as we journey toward that final day, do we do so with joyful shout? Do we? We do whenever we remember we're kingdom bound. When we think about, when we process, when we actually accept as true and real where we're going, joy rushes in. If I'm looking at where I'm at, I can get pretty disturbed, pretty tense. But as I'm looking to the coming kingdom, joy starts to fill my heart. That's the point. That's where we're going. That's why we've been given these lives in the first place. And I know I'm beating a dead horse on this, not calling you a dead horse. I'm just saying. I know I'm talking a lot about this, about where we're going, but that's where our joy comes from. No matter what happens today or yesterday or tomorrow, what's coming is the kingdom, and God is faithful, and he will see us through as he did Israel. Sukkot is that annual reminder. God sees his people through. God promises to do it, and then he does it, even if the journey is long, even if the way is uncertain or the path is dark. Sukkot, a celebration of God's faithfulness. Now, you have heard another name for it. In fact, if you studied with us through Genesis, Exodus, you've already heard this feast referred to before, Exodus 23, verse 16. The Lord says, you shall observe the feast of the harvest. That's Reshit, the fall harvest, or, or sorry, the, the, the spring harvest, of the first fruits of your labors from what you sow in the field. So celebrate Reshit in the spring, first fruits, and also the feast of ingathering. That is Sukkot. Feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in the fruit of your labors from your field. Now, stay with me. This is really interesting. Exodus 34, 22, he says, you shall celebrate the Feast of Weeks. That's Shavuot. That's the summer harvest. The first fruits of the wheat harvest and the Feast of Ingathering, Sukkot, at the turn of the year. It's called the Feast of Ingathering. The Feast of Ingathering. There were three feasts on this seven-feast calendar 
three of them all having to do with harvest. Reshit, first fruits. That's the spring barley harvest. And then following that, Shavuot, Pentecost, was the summer wheat harvest, early summer. And then finally, Sukkot, which is the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, Sukkot, which is the fall harvest of fruit, the Feast of Ingathering, that final ingathering of the fruit of the harvest. So not only did Sukkot celebrate the faithfulness of God, but secondly, the final harvest of the land. Celebrate this as the final harvest of the land. Look again at verse 39 on exactly the 15th day of the seventh month when you have gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days. That word crops is tebuat. And tebuat in Hebrew is produce. So technically it, it implies fruits and veggies. They've already had the grains harvested in the spring and in the summer, this is the fruit harvest. This is the sweet stuff. Psalm 104, 13 says, he waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of his works. Now you can refer to a head of wheat as fruit or barley as the fruit of the stock, but we think of fruit, we think of sweet, tasty fruits. And so on the Hebrew year, in Israel, even today, in the spring and the early summer, it's grains. In the late summer and into the fall, it begins to be grapes and figs and olives and dates and pomegranates and citrus. I've told you before, Israel is the number two supplier of citrus for the whole world. Tiny Israel. They're amazing in what they do in terms of their fruit harvest and so the last fruits of the year are gathered in the fall and Sukkot is a celebration of that fall fruit harvest. You get the prophetic indication there? See what this is talking about? The last harvest? The feast of the ingathering? I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way. I can confess to you, I don't think I have. But James chapter 1, verse 17 Yaakov says, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits from among his creatures. So the one they call James, Jacob is his name, said, we're first fruits. We're like reshit, the early fruits of the harvest. And technically speaking, if you look across 2,000 years, he was right. Those who came to Christ early on, the first fruits, were like that. Now, I've always thought of that as being me, but the honest truth is we're 2,000 years in, so I'm really one of the last fruits. It's okay, I was like that in high school, you know, coming along at the very end. I, I got it, I got it. First fruits, last fruits, the, the final harvest, the feast of the ingathering. See, there are first fruits, and there are last fruits as well. And so Sukkot is not ultimately about looking back over the year or the wilderness and the historical deliverance. It is future tense. Future tense because it was to look ahead to the final ingathering, the last fruits. 
It is the most anticipatory feast of all the feasts of Israel. It is more anticipatory than Yom Teruah, Day of Trumpets. See, we as Christians, that's the one we think of. That's what we're listening for. You know, even the slide. If I even hear someone warming up on a trumpet, I'm, I'm excited. But that's not the most anticipatory feast. Sukkot is. Because Sukkot looks at the ultimate final ingathering of the last fruit as we are all brought to bear the ingathering in the kingdom. Turn over to Matthew chapter 24. Turn there quickly because I'm going to start reading even as you turn. Matthew chapter 24. In verse 29. Matthew 24, 29, which says immediately after the tribulation of those days... The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of, the, of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see, note this, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Totally different than the rapture of the church where it will not be a seen thing. It'll happen instantaneously and people will go. But in the glorious appearing of Jesus, every eye will see. Everyone on the planet is going to see him coming. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds and from one end of the sky to the other. The time of the final ingathering, as the Lord Jesus gathers all of his people from as far and wide as they may be, to gather them back together. By the way, the final three feasts that happen in the fall are explicitly played out in the book of Revelation. Do you realize that? That the revelation of Jesus Christ, that that book at the end of our Bibles covers the final three feasts. They are fulfilled. We, we see the fulfillment. They're played out, as it were, in the book of Revelation. Turn over to Revelation chapter 14. We see this fulfillment happening. You go to Revelation 14, but we hear Yom Teruah, the day of the trumpet, the day of blowing in Revelation chapter 4 when John is caught up. And then we see, if you can understand this, the day of atonement, we see that played out. Revelation 6 through 18 through 19 in their repentance of Israel. In, in Israel's time of affliction, what, what the Bible calls Jacob's trouble, Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7. And then Sukkot, the kingdom, in Revelation chapter 20. So all three of the fall feasts, the spring feasts aren't dealt with in the book of Revelation because they've already been fulfilled. But the Revelation shows us the fulfillment of all three of the fall feasts, including at the end Sukkot in Revelation chapter 20. But listen to this, Revelation 14, listen to the language. Verse 14 says, I looked and behold a white cloud and sitting on the cloud one like a son of man having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, who I believe, by the way, the one on the cloud is Jesus. But if you want more on that, go listen to the Revelation study. The angel cried out to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. And my friends, listen, that reaping may indicate 
the reaping of the final good fruit on the earth. There may be a picture there of the last who will be saved being reaped in the harvest at that point. Why do you say that? Read on. It says in verse 16, Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. And then another angel, the one who had power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called out with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. And the word ripe in verse 18 is literally overripe. This is beyond gathering. These are the overripe grapes. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered these clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. See, the first gathering back in verse 15, the first sickle put in, put in by Jesus, gathers the final harvest. But these are gathered and thrown into the winepress of the wrath of God. Verse 20, and the winepress was trodden outside the city and the blood came up from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. We're talking about two different reapings here. One where the final ingathering happens and the second one where it is a reaping unto judgment. And all of that happened, happens right before kingdom come. The fall fruits. The final ingathering. Now, before we go any further on this, you got to remember, to have a kingdom, you have to have a king, right? And as with all the appointed feasts of the Lord, Sukkot does something else. So it speaks of the faithfulness of God in the wilderness, the final harvest of the last fruits at the end of the age. And it speaks, number three, it anticipates and it intimates like all the feasts do, the flesh of Jesus. Note this, the flesh of Jesus. What do you mean? John 1.14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And you Bible students know that word dwelt is eskinosin from the word skenuo, which means tabernacled. The word became flesh and he tabernacled among us. He he. <laughs> moved into his booth, pitched his tent among us. And John says, we saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus succored among us. Which should remind us that God's desire has always been to dwell among his people. We pray, Lord, make your presence known. We ask, Lord, would you be with us this morning in worship? We're just praying his desire. Realize it's not that we're begging him, would you please? It's what he wants. It's what he has wanted from the beginning in the cool of the day, walking in the garden, just to be with Adam and Eve as they ran off scared of their nudity. <laughs> and ever since then, the Lord has been doing whatever it takes to be with us, even to the point that he put on flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us. By the way, not to break anyone's candy canes, but Jesus was probably not born on December 25th. In fact, he was probably born in the late fall, we think the month of Tishri, September, October time frame, and it is possible 
just entertain this notion. It's possible he was born during Sukkot. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. If he was, in fact, born during Sukkot, then the shepherd's caves in the shepherd's fields on the outskirts of Bethlehem would have made a perfect little sukkah for Jesus and Joseph and Mary. But did you know that Jesus celebrated Sukkot as an adult? That he enjoyed the feast, the festival himself. In fact, <laughs> he didn't celebrate it quietly. Let me give you a little background of something that's happened and used to happen during Sukkot. Each morning, the feast uh, of the feast, the priests would divide into two camps, two groups. And one group went to the east, and the other one went south. One group east, one group south. Group number one went to the east, down into the Cadrone Valley, up onto the Mount of Olives, and they went that direction to gather foliage. The foliage from the fields, palm and myrtle and citrus and, and, and willow, and these they brought out of the valley and off the mountain. They would bring these back up to the temple and they distributed them. Half went to the altar and the other half went to the people. And that's because there was a denominational dispute between Pharisees and Sadducees over what God meant back in Leviticus 23 when he said, you shall gather the palm branches and, and, and wave them and then build these sukkahs. And so they weren't sure, well, who's supposed to wave them? The priests or the people? God didn't say. So the, the Pharisees... They said the people and the Sadducees who were temple guys, they said the priests. And they made a, you know, they came together and said, all right, we'll compromise. We'll put half for the temple and the priests and the other half we'll give to the people. And so they would do this. And then group two, so they were the group that went east. Group two went south. They went marching gloriously down the southern steps of the Temple Mount. And if you've been to Israel, you know exactly what I'm talking about, those southern steps. They would go right down those steps and they continued, perhaps along a newly discovered path, just been unearthed, and we may be able to walk this on our next tour, uh, a 25-foot-wide ancient stone path that is called the Pilgrim's Road. And the Pilgrim's Road literally connect, connects the Pool of Siloam all the way up to the Temple Mount. This would have been the road they walked. Again, in a glorious march, and they would carry a gold pitcher before them, about a quart size. They'd carry that down to the Pool of Siloam in the city of David. They would take this pitcher and dip it into the Gahon Spring. And then they would march back up to the temple, singing the Hallel Psalms, Psalm 113 to 118. And at the temple, they would come in and take that golden pitcher, and they would pour it into a silver cup just to the west side of the altar. It's called the water libation ceremony. And the whole idea be, behind this march, it's not even in scripture, it was developed, it became tradition over time, but it was, hey, let's remember the water in the wilderness. Water from the rock, how the Lord provided, made bitter water sweet, and they dipped that and carried it up and poured in, thinking about the water and God's provision for the people in the water libation ceremony. But interestingly, on the eighth day, they would do the march again. Okay, the eighth day of the feast. So the, the feast is seven days. The eighth day is that Shabbat Shabbaton. But on that day, the, the priest would march down there carrying that same golden pitcher, making the same march. They would go down, and they would pretend to dip it in the Gihon Spring. They wouldn't actually dip. 
And they would carry that empty pitcher marching gloriously right back up to the temple. They would come to the west side of the altar to that silver cup and they would pretend to pour as nothing came out. But while they poured, they prayed an ancient prophecy. I don't think they even realized what they were doing. Think about this. Isaiah 44, verses one through four, but three and four say this. I will pour out water on the thirsty and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. Every year at Sukkot, in the water libation ceremony, they came up without water, pouring and, and praising God and praying that prayer. It's Isaiah's prophecy of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They're looking back. They're thinking, you know, looking back and then looking ahead. They're thinking prophetically that God's gonna, you know, cause his people to, to really spring up in the land and bring his kingdom again, not recognizing Isaiah's talking about the spirit of the Lord poured out upon people and refreshing them. It's a prayer for Messiah to come. That's the whole idea. Enter Jesus. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter seven. John chapter seven, as Jesus goes up to Sukkot. The Gospel of John, chapter seven. I just love this because in this story you hear both the heart of Jesus and the intentions. The heart of Jesus was a humble heart, meek. You know, not, not tooting his own horn just to toot his own horn, although he had every right. But always approaching things from a humble servant perspective. John chapter seven, verse one, after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the feast of the Jews, note this, the feast of booths was near, Sukkot. Therefore, his brother said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples may see your works which you are doing, for no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world spoken in utter jealousy by his brothers who watched what had been going on. And it says in verse five, for not even his brothers were believing in him. Skip down to verse 10. Jesus basically responds, my time's not yet here. I don't go on your time frame. I go on my own. But in verse 10, it says, when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? By this time, Jesus was very known in the land. And in verse 12, it says, there was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. And some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. So you can imagine in the streets of Jerusalem at that particular Sukkot, that time of rejoicing it was like, have you seen Jesus? No, I don't. Have you heard about him? Yeah, oh, I've heard about him. Good guy. No, he's not. No, he's a false prophet. What is he? I don't know. Have you seen him? I'm not sure. Is he around the corner? Let's look for him. I mean, they're all whispering and talking about Jesus. And he's right there among them. Well, verse 37, skip all the way down. So he's there during that week. He does some teaching. He, he's there present. But it says in verse 37, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, 
If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And by this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. At the water libation ceremony, I think that's when he said this. It fits right in with what was going on. They're pouring out the water. They're doing that. And on the great day, the final day, they come walking up and they pour this empty pitcher. And as they pour the empty pitcher and as they pray the prophetic prayer of Isaiah for Messiah to come, Messiah's voice of many waters, we could say, broke the silence and answered the prayer. If anyone's thirsty, here I am. Jesus at Sukkot. And what I love about Jesus is he always made it all about himself. That's what some of the rabbis still today have trouble with, those who respect his teachings and see the wisdom. They just can't go that far because Jesus makes it about himself. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. It is these that testify of me. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And if, as if it weren't enough, there was another ceremony that took place not in the morning like the water libation ceremony, but in the evening every single day of the great feast. For Sukkot, they would bring out these four enormous menorahs with four huge cups or lamps on the top that literally needed ladders to be climbed just to light them. They were huge. And these four were set up in the women's court of the temple before the temple. They were so big that the wicks of these lamps were worn out used robes of the priests. And these robes then dipped down in these massive bowls of oil would be lit every evening of the great feast. They were so big the Mishnah says the light of these menorahs could be seen from the temple a hundred miles away. I don't know if that's true, but that's what the Mishnah says. And the idea behind these big menorahs was to recall, since it was Sukkot and they're remembering the wilderness and God's faithfulness and all that going on, and they're celebrating, they put these big menorahs up to implicate the Shekinah glory of God. The light by day, the fire by night, remember, that led the people through the wilderness. And so they would light these big menorahs and all night long these things would burn bright. Every evening, the priests would march up the steps of the temple singing the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 120 through 134. Fifteen Psalms, one Psalm for every step. They'd take a step, sing a Psalm, take a step, sing a Psalm. They'd get up to the top and the younger priests who were a little more flexible and, and safe would climb the ladders and light the lamps. Every evening of the feast, these giant lampstands were ignited and burned brightly all night long. But on the eighth day, as the great menorahs were doused in the early morning hours and the people assembled for that special Shabbat, Enter Jesus. Look over at John chapter 8, verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And so once again, Jesus makes Sukkot all about him. 
It's almost like he couldn't help himself. He tells his brothers, this is not my time. He's staying in the Galilee because there's a threat on his life. And if he goes into Jerusalem and makes himself known, they could come after him. But at the feast, as he's watching the water libation ceremony, he has to say, all right, anyone thirsty, come to me and drink. And then on the day, the final day, as those lamps finally are put out, I am the light of the world. He just has to say, has to let people know it's all about Jesus. And you know in the story, then he goes on to fulfill all four of the spring feasts right on time because God never misses an appointment. Jesus making it about himself. Where does that put us? Think about this. It's been a long summer since the fulfillment of the last spring feast, Shavuot, Pentecost. I said this on Wednesday night. I got to repeat it this morning. The last feast and the church was born. And it's been a long summer. We haven't gotten to the fall feast yet in terms of God's appointed time. But something has happened during this long summer. The fig tree has ripened, as it always does. And Jesus said, learn the parable of the fig tree. Shavuot, Pentecost, and then, then the fig tree. Where does that put us on the verge of the fall of the age? Yom Teruah, the day of blowing, rapture of the church. That's the next thing on the, account, on the calendar. God doesn't miss an appointment. And then Yom Kippur, day of atonement or day of affliction, speaking of repentance in Israel. And I do believe, by the way, that Yom Kippur and the awesome days around it are depict, if you will, the tribulation. The nation of Israel going into and through tribulation during a time of affliction and repentance. But then comes the final feast, Sukkot, which is rejoicing in camp kingdom. And Jesus says, it's all about me. Sukkot is the seventh feast in the seventh month during what I believe will be the seventh millennia of the earth. The feast that celebrates the ingathering of the harvest of last fruits brought to the light of the world. And by the way, I just got to ask the question this morning, are you one of the last fruits that we're waiting for? <laughs> Will you just be reaped already? Now, the reason we know this feast is prophetic of the kingdom, as I've been saying all through this morning, is it's the only one that is explicitly associated with that time. You can look through the scriptures and especially read through Ezekiel's last several chapters, chapter 40 to 48, and you start to see many of these feasts, if not all, are reinstated and will be celebrated, these seven feasts, during the kingdom. But Sukkot is the one that God connects specifically to the kingdom. We have the faithfulness of Yahweh represented in Sukkot, the final harvest represented in Sukkot, the flesh of Jesus who showed up and made Sukkot all about himself, and finally, fourth point, the feast of nations. Turn to Zechariah 14, and we'll end there this morning. Zechariah 14 and the feast of nations. While you're turning to Zechariah 14, listen up. In Numbers 29, we learn something about Sukkot, the offerings that are required during the week of Sukkot. They're laid out and described. And in that description, Numbers 29, it tells us 
On the first day of Sukkot, 13 bulls were to be offered. On the second day, 12. On the third day, 11. On the fourth day, 10. On the fifth day, 9. On the sixth day, 8. On the seventh day, 7. And if you add up all the bulls that are offered during the week of Sukkot, the number comes to 70. 70 bulls offered in a week. 70 specifically in the Bible. 70 is the number of nations. The number of nations. And I submit to you this morning that even as Yom Kippur, that sixth feast, the second of the three in the fall, as Yom Kippur was atonement for the Jewish people, Sukkot has the implications of God's provisional atonement for the nations. At least until Jesus came the first time and made the two people, Jew and Gentile, one, as Jake read this morning. A provisional atonement for the nations at Sukkot. Seventy bulls offered. And Sukkot has the implication of being a nationwide feast, not just for Israel, but for the alien as well, for the outsider, for the Gentile, for the nations of the world. And I tell you this because the nations of the world will celebrate Sukkot together in the kingdom. Zechariah chapter 14, look at verse 4. In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and half of the mountain will move toward the south, and you will flee by the valley of my mountains for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. So imagine that on the day of Jesus' return into Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives just starts to shake and quake and it splits up the middle and Jesus sets foot right there. Awesome. By the way, you'll never find a Hilton Hotel on top of the Mount of Olives. So when Jesus comes back, he's going to have to look for somewhere else to stay. You see, they were going to build a fancy Hilton up on the top of the mount until it was discovered that a major fault line runs right down the middle, east to west. Big surprise. And all major construction in Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives is prohibited due to this seismic problem. But read on. Zechariah 14, verse 6. In that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. For it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. I submit to you the light of the world. And it, in that day, living water. So would you just circle that? In verse 7, at the evening time there will be light. Just like the light of the menorah, like Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, reminding us of the water libation ceremony. Half of them toward the eastern sea, the other half toward the western sea, and it will be in summer as well as in winter. Verse 9, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. My friends, verse 9, the Lord is Yahweh who will be king over all the earth in the person of Jesus Christ. In that day. And that day is fast approaching. 
Verse 16, skip down and look at that. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate Sukkot, the Feast of Booths. Listen to me, this has never happened. Never has there been a time in all the history of the world when all the nations of the world went up to Jerusalem to celebrate Sukkot. And God's word says it will happen, therefore it must happen. Again, this is not the stuff of fairy tales and kingdoms of yore. This must be because God is faithful and true to his word. And he will be. And all Israel will be restored again. In fact, Amos chapter 9, verse 11 says, In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches, and I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, talking about Jerusalem. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. When do they do that? In the fall, at the fall feast. When the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. Can you imagine that in the kingdom? You're just walking around with an empty wine glass going, hey, right on. On that day in the kingdom, and Sukkot is going to be celebrated by all the families of every nation of the earth. The feast of nations. But for those who choose not to come, Verse 17, and it will be that whichever the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. If the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the feast of booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the feast of of booths, all this joy, all this celebration, but there's a warning. Do not disregard this feast. You need to come up to Jerusalem. It is compulsory for the world because if you don't, no rain. You get a year drought, and then you get the next year to choose if you want to come up or not. What's the point of that? Jesus will not force any nation to go up to Jerusalem to build happy huts or to celebrate that joyful feast. They're not going to force you. They just won't get any rain. Now, if you think about right now, God, the Bible tells us, Jesus said, Matthew 5.45, causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. So if you want to talk about fairness, right now, evil people still get sunshine, still get beautiful days like this in the Northwest, Bad, wicked people are waking up this morning going, what a lovely day. They get it, and so do the good. And Jesus says he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous to water the fields, to cultivate the earth. It doesn't matter if you're good, bad, or ugly. You get the sun and the rain. It's all coming. God blesses. But for the evil person and the unrighteous, this is as good as it will ever get. I was talking to someone about this this last week, and think about it. If someone is really, seems to be just filthy rich, and, and everything seems to go right for that person, but they're really not good, and you wonder, how come they get good things happening? Because this is all they'll ever have. 
Because the God of grace, knowing they will not have eternity with him and all the joys and pleasures of his presence, the God of all grace says, well, I'll give him it now. Kind of like the prodigal son, I'm going to give you your inheritance now, but it's all you'll ever have, the best you'll get. Listen, in the kingdom, as, as with today, where there is no worship, there is always drought. If you don't worship God, you will experience drought. There is no life without the spirit. Life dries up. It gets hard and difficult. I thought about this over the years. There are churches that are all about the spirit. They're inundated with the spirit, but they really aren't into the word, so they don't have the grounding of the truth. And then there are churches that are all about the word, and they're totally into the word, and it's verse by verse by verse, but they don't have the spirit, and so they become dry and lifeless. They really need both the word of God and the worship of God and the spirit of God, which then saturates our lives and quenches our thirst. So you want to go to the Feast of Booths. And right now, the feast of these tents is worship. It's praying in the spirit. It's walking together with Jesus Remember I asked you at the outset of, of this teaching this morning, what is a tent? It's a temporary structure. Again, like these bodies, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 4, for indeed while we're in this tent we groan, being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, listen, is God, don't miss this, who gave us his spirit as a pledge. We're in these temporary tents and the spirit of God is, as it were, the water. The water of life, the living water, right here, right now. But then, Revelation twenty two seventeen, 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. Final question. If a tent is a temporary dwelling, why is it such a key celebration in the kingdom? It's a temporary dwelling. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that the millennial part of the kingdom is temporary. Even that part of the kingdom, not the kingdom, the kingdom is eternal. But the season of the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth is eternal temporary because at the end of that time the heaven and the earth are going to pass away and God's going to bring to us this glorious he's already shown us the blueprints new Jerusalem new heaven and new earth like the king the kingdom is eternal but that first thousand years of the kingdom like Sukkot is temporary at the end it's the last age of the earth and then the earth as we know it is going to be gone don't love the world or the things of this world. They're passing away. But the Lord is forever. And Revelation 21 verse 3 says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle, the tent, the booth of God is among men. And he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. Revelation 21, 23, and the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it for the glory of God has illumined it and its lamp 
is the Lamb. Amen? The kingdoms, the nations of this world, they're going to crumble. Don't put your hope in them. They're going to fall. Even America, it's all going to go down. Brothers and sisters, make it your business to camp out in worship and in the word of God and by the spirit of God. We need this now more than ever because the day is near. Kingdom's coming. And that should fill you with all joy if you're ready for it. Are you ready? Jesus, make us ready. Jesus, if there's anyone listening to this message this morning, whether here or elsewhere, anyone who hears this teaching and has not come under the authority of Jesus, not requested the lordship of Jesus in their life, Lord, would you pierce the heart this morning? And may this be the day of of repentance and receiving you as Lord and Savior, as King eternal. Father, for us as your followers, would you remove doubt? Would you remove despair and depression and, and worry and fear? Take that stuff away, Father, and help us to focus on and rejoice in the coming kingdom. May we be those who seek first the kingdom and your righteousness, O Father, trusting fully in you with our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 